Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Thirdly, I want to give a huge shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Athlete Concepts. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation educational material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. Hey guys, just before I introduce today's guest, I want to bring it to your awareness that the Irish Strength Institute will be hosting their annual symposium on the 28th and 29th of July at the Grand Hotel in Malahide in Dublin, Ireland. Now, the lineup that the ISI team put together for this symposium is absolutely outstanding. Some of the speakers that will be presenting at the symposium will be Dr. Eric Serrano, Dr. Ken Kanakin, the founder of the Swiss Conference, Victoria Felker, Alexandro Ferretti, as well as legendary coach Isvan Javorik, yes, the godfather of barbell complexes, as well as a host of other outstanding speakers that you can find out about when you go to the registration page. Now, as listeners of this podcast, the ISI is offering you guys a 50 euro discount when you register for the event. The link along with the discount code and all of the event details will be linked up in the show notes. Thanks, guys. This episode's guest is James Smith from Global Sports Concepts. James is back on with me for his monthly interview on the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. In this episode, James responds to an article written by Jamie Hamilton. In his article, Decoding James Smith's Message, Jamie shares some of his criticisms with some of James's concepts on sports preparation. 
as always with James, guys, this was another excellent episode. I really think you're going to find this one interesting. Hope you enjoyed. Okay, James, we are recording and we are live, so great to have you back on. Just before we hop into today's topic, how have you been keeping? Good to be back. Everything's going well. Business as usual. Nothing particularly remarkable, but all is good. Now, I can't really tell because I can only see from the neck up, but you're, you're looking kind of uh, buffy. Are you doing a lot of training these days? You look strong. That That's a constant. Still, <laughs> that that, well, that never wavers. That never wavers. Yeah, uh, sorry, uh, I mean that as a compliment. Not, not that you never look like you're uh, in good shape, but just uh, just whatever way the shirt's sitting on the shoulders today. You're you're that looking you're looking tall and proud. Okay, so um, I think a lot of the listeners are going to be interested in today's podcast because there's been a bit of a uh, talk about uh, this in the so- on the socials, as they say. So mm-hmm. Jamie Hamilton wrote a uh, wrote an article on his blog um, called Decoding James Smith's Message, and he brought up some points there. Now, as I said to you just before we hopped on, I just want to be clear, like, you know, that in fairness, Jamie's not here to defend any of his points or a rebuttal because it's just me and James speaking, and I did invite Jamie on, but apparently he has a, an agreement with another podcast to host a debate, if you will, with James, if, if it takes place. But, um, so that may be something that happens in the future. But, uh, yeah, I'm just here again to facilitate James. Um, he's read through the article. I've read through it once and then had a second kind of skim through it again. And to be honest, just so people know, my way of learning is I need to read things multiple times. So I have a decent enough concept of what was trying to be brought across. I have some notes made here, but I probably would need to read it maybe another 40 times knowing me. That's just the way I learn. I have to beat things into my head. Uh, but anyway, James, I mean, the floor is yours now. So, um, yeah, take it away. Apart from, as we mentioned off the air, apart from anything specific you'd like me to address, what I what I gathered from Jamie's criticism was that first and foremost, I, th- I thought it was really well written, and I always appreciate substantive criticism. And what what seems to be my observation between what he wrote and the the lack of cohesion that ultimately existed between the discussion that Dan Abrams and I had on the Just Kicking It podcast and in other domains in which my views or arguments or theories receive a modicum of conflict from others. That there seems to be two two things going on. One is well. What, what underlies all of this is human fallibility. And there tends to be a polarization that I observe with respect to content and how that is interpreted by any individuals. The, the polarization tends to shift as a result of emotional influence and interpretation such that there's elements that either strongly resonate or strongly repel based upon non-objective reference frames. And, and as, you, I, as you know, as, as I noted, one of, one of Jamie's criticisms as well as what Dan Abrams had a, had a very recurring criticism with was this notion of how does objectivity work in the way that I am referencing it and how does it apply so this sort of the two spheres 
that I see the problem arising from one is an error in signal, perhaps. And if that's the case, if, if my mode of explanation does not resonate, then the onus of responsibility is on me if the objective is for me to impact every possible listener or reader, depending upon where the content stems from, which, you know, medium platform. If my objective is to resonate as deeply with every possible listener, then I would be responsible for the signal error. And because we are all fallible, clearly I'm accountable for that share. The, the, uh, The other part of it, however, is the emotional factor. And it's one in which I am skilled at mitigating, if not eliminating from my activity in the public domain. And the emotional interpretation tends to skew what would be more effectively objective reasoning applied to disseminating the argument. And, and built into that emotionally influenced interpretation, we can have substantive misconceptions, which is to say the modes by which one has educated him and herself could very well be error-laden. And I use the word error-laden independent of the fact that absolutely all things are fallible. All of us are fallible. So the error-laden is specifically in reference to the absence of effective criticism that has been rendered from the standpoint of the prevailing state of the art, no matter the minority populations from which the state of the art emerges. And so... As we get deeper into this, it becomes a, a bit tedious in that the tendency to attempt to qualify every single statement comes into the, the forefront of consciousness due to the volatility in terms of how this subject matter gets interpreted by individuals, particularly if there's an emotional bent to their perception. So as I stated, if, if you if you want to go specific point by point, we can certainly do that. But in, in my judgment, what the what what I gathered from reading Jamie's criticism, in addition to as as he referenced the conversation that that Dan and I had, is that in, is that in principle, the, the two sort of main actors here at play is whether or not there's simply an error in signal. And and I state that because while this may seem intuitive, as I operate exclusively as a consultant, it should be easy enough to understand that anyone who is enlisting my consulting services clearly has recognized some level of my argument or information that aligns with some component of their own thinking Mm -hmm. and it it should therefore be no surprise to anyone that my consulting clients for example who have listened 
to the discussion that Dan and I had, what I suspect would be familiar to most in terms of an, an intuitive presupposition is that anyone who's already has aligned views with arguments of my own who's listened to that podcast has communicated to me a very difficult time in listening to Dan's mode of explanation. And that shouldn't come to a, a surprise as anyone, but the, the, the point of that podcast and any other interaction I have with individuals is not to overcome an opponent, it's to come to a mutual discovery of the truth of the matter. And it just so happens to be that my affinity for that truth being a, an objective one is one that tends to come under criticism as localizing me to a, a purely, and some of this was resonated in Jamie's article, I, I seem, and again, if this is an error in signal, then I'm the one responsible for being narrowed to a domain in which I'm just fiercely loyal to this rigorous hard science paradigm apart from any others, which of course is ironic for those who know that I am a, if there's one vocation that I'm formally schooled in, it's the aesthetics as I am a music school graduate. And, and of course, anyone who owns my book understands the deep influence of the arts and the aesthetics and my, and my argument. So perhaps that does not come clear enough in the information sources that were reviewed. And so, and so to that point, you'll notice that Jamie has not read the governing dynamics of coaching. And so the criticism perhaps is, is simply not based upon enough substantive information in, in which one might say, you know, how reasonable is it to form a full criticism of a feature-length motion picture after o only having reviewed a three-minute preview. Mm -hmm. so, so, so that very well may have something to do with it as well. I don't believe that Dan Abrams read my book, and I know that Jamie has not read my book. And so that's where the, the fairest substantive criticism would be drawn from. And so apart from that, I hasten short of having the conversation with, with Jamie himself, I hasten to read too much deeper into it simply because he's, he's clearly not familiar with the, the magnitude of, of information that most effectively explains my argument, which, which is the book, which you are a recent proud owner of. I so, am. so yeah, so unless you have, some of those specific questions we can we can proceed on um yeah i do i, I actually have a few little, uh, questions jotted down there um the first one just like well sorry first thing i want to say i always say this when discussions like this come up in terms of people criticizing other people's work because just i mean i'm only 31 years old but with my time so far on this planet my current sort of thoughts on this are that nearly every single criticism that I've ever come across of somebody criticizing someone else's work, it's usually based 
of false assumptions or a misunderstanding of that individual's work. But they keep wanting to criticize even when that point is brought up to them. So like, cause I, this is why I've always reached out to people who are being criticized. So like, I remember when the FMS was getting slated by people, I was like, okay, I'm going to do a podcast with Greg Cook and ask the man himself, like, and get the information from his mouth. Or, like, I've done that multiple times with, with people, like, you know, because I want to get, I want to make sure that I'm fully understanding something before I can give a true opinion on it. And that's why when people do ask for my opinion on things, I'll always say, like, if I, if I actually don't know enough about it, I'll just say I don't know enough to give an opinion or a thought on it. But then I'll often say that if this is what this is, and this and this is actually what it is. Then this is my opinion on it. Like if, if I'm correct in my assumption, this will be my criticism. So like I'd be very careful with my wording and my semantics. But just uh, I find that nearly every criticism is based on false assumptions. Well, in 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 all fairness, I I I do recall that in Jamie's article he said that he was not interested in straw manning my own, and he remained completely open to correction and so that that's why i say i i respect the substantive nature of what he wrote and for those who are not familiar in philosophical argument these these jargons straw manning and steel manning are brought to bear in many discussions and this this speaks to what you just stated robbie in that for those who are not familiar straw manning is essentially reducing the opponent's argument to a, a feeble infrastructure that is easily overcome by the antagonist. And steel manning is the opposite of that. Steel manning is, and I think this is consensus agreement, certainly stemming from the intellectuals who I admire in this domain. Steel manning is the way to go because steel manning is the opposite of that. It is, ha- it is developing as deeper and even deeper understanding of the other opinion or argument so as to build it up as the name suggests steel as opposed to straw and thereby thereby render that much more of an objective platform for argument as opposed to a biased one in, in which case straw manning is almost always linked to biased emotional partiality influence, whereas steel manning is demonstrating the time and cognitive energy that has been spent on understanding, perhaps even at a deeper level, the argument of the opponent so as to render that much more of a righteous explanation of one's own. And and as I indicated in one social media message to Jamie was that had he read the book, he would have seen that I absolutely steel man the argument that I am criticizing, which is to, which is to state that my, my steel manning is my description of exactly the way sport is working and has been working. And it is only after this explanation that I render my criticisms of the dysfunctional nature of it. And as you are now familiar with, because you have the book, it's a a fairly comprehensive book that is steeped in my explanation of what these solutions are. So 
I, I bring that up because, to be fair, I, 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 th I think that Jamie wrote a, a fair criticism, which is why I, I come back to whether there was substantive simply misunderstanding or a signal error on behalf of my own with respect to the mediums that he did review. It, seem, it seems to be he looked at some of my previews for the book on YouTube and the listen to the podcast with Dan. So, Yeah, I listened to that podcast with Dan as well. Um, yeah, there, there might be a few questions that will come up with that in, in, as we go on. But uh, what I want to talk about there now is um, actually this – this was in Dan's podcast too, so we're actually getting to this sooner than I thought because it came up in, in Jamie's article too. Is this like they they seem to question your over sort of reliance on objectivity all the time, and mm. that Jamie brought it in his article about like that even at a sub subatomic level, there's no agreement as like to you know calling it waves or light. He's like so even at a subatomic level, he's like there's uncertainty and subjectivity. So he's like, at the most fundamental level, we're subjective. So how can anything be objective? That, yeah. So I, I cannot speak towards, I, I don't have that in front of me. I'm, I'm not sure if that's exactly what he stated. However, the, there, there's certainly no confusion as to what it means to be committed to an objective interpretation. And the, the self-consistency that is demonstrated in any type of, of well-received scientific or otherwise publication is one that preserves this. So I, I don't, there's nothing even controversial about the notion of what is objective or not. And this is essentially the basis of any consensus agreement that we understand the incomplete nature of all things. We understand human fallibility. We understand that no theory can be proved apart from a mathematical one. So that's already a given. However, in all of these domains, even apart from mathematics, which is the hardest and the, and the purest of them all, there is no controversy that surrounds this notion of objectivity in, in general. It's, here we're finding a, a local one in terms of the, the, this, how, how Jamie or Dan or others are arguing the, the extent to which this is applicable or true. There, there does not seem to be an argument from my critics as to whether they are, rather, th there doesn't seem to be evidence that these individuals are challenging the very concept of objectivity. It's not as if they're refuting the fact that this word exists mm. and it defines the absence of partiality and presupposition, emotional contribution, bias, opinion. There doesn't seem to be any controversy regarding this is the definition of the word and how it works in the world. What, what seems to be the greater criticism is how it actually works in the, the context that I am yeah. arguing. That's that, but I just uh, uh, I, I have the, the piece here in front of me, but I, I know what you're trying to say here that it's, it's probably not, it's not the main tenet of their their criticism. But uh, what he what he did say was this, and I'm reading it directly now. So he says, and while we're discussing the objectivity of the scientific method, it might also be useful to note that here that as Marie Louise 
von Franz points out in her concluding essay to psychologist Carl Jung's 1964 book, Man and Symbols. So this is from Carl Jung's book, Man and Symbols. Modern microphysics has discovered that one can only describe light by means of two logical opposed or complementary concepts, the idea of particle and wave. In grossly oversimplified terms, it might be said that under certain experimental conditions, light manifests itself as if it were composed of particle, under, uh, under others as it were a wave. And then finally, this is what this is back to Jamie now. This is just a, another a line or two, and then I'll go back to you. So it appears that counterintuitive to modern mechanistic thinking, even the supposedly objective nature of light subatomic structures does in fact depend on what you look at. You might even venture to posit that this is relative to your perspective. And again, if these observations do not represent a fair assessment of Mr. Smith's position and my issues with it, here I am more than happy to be corrected. So in fairness, he did finish with that. Yeah, certainly. And so, you know, regarding the piece you just quoted, I can certainly correct him. Because even in that physics context, in the, the quantum reference frame, it is false to conflate the, 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 the reality that uh, the way observation uh, affects the essentially the wave function itself is affected by the act of observation. This is, tends to be the theoretical agreement, and this is not to be conflated with objectivity and or subjectivity. These are, these are two different subject matter domains. So no matter you know, it, regarding a double slit experiment or interference or quantum entanglement, all the, these, these different complicated facets of the quantum mechanics are not to be conflated with the, the notion that there's subjective circumstances arising. It's simply that the, the way that the actual act of observing an, an experiment affects, in this case, w the observation of reality. This is not to be conflated with anything related to subjectivity. So e every mode of experiment is objective in and of itself. It's simply that the results of the experiment as it regards quantum mechanics are affected by the act of observation itself which is, has its own set of d difficulties to comprehend. So that's a, essentially Jamie elected to use a bad analogy there because that, that does not apply. Yeah, well that clears, that's good because that was, a, that was a, a, a piece within this article and that's cleared up. Just I, I want to go back to, you, know, you spoke about that there may be a responsibility in your part and how you're getting your message across. And it's just something I made a note of, and there is our episode on grammar. Would you not feel that that is? Uh, and listen, there's nothing wrong with like there's nothing wrong with like sounding like you contradicted yourself. But do you not think you're kind of contradicting yourself there by saying, you know, maybe I'm not saying it in the way people understand since that episode because you were like in in that episode. The, the, and this is this is my interpretation of that episode was that you know it was more about getting people up to a level of that standard of you know, discussion and dialogue. I'm not sure I understand the question, Robbie. Maybe you say that again. So, like, you're, you're, you're sort of, you're sort of saying that maybe some of the responsibility for the criticism you get is due to the way you relay your message. But from the, mm. the, the episode we done on grammar, 
the impression I took away from that episode was that instead of you having to dumb down your message to people, just right. just using that for a more gross sort of analogy here, you felt that it, it that was not your responsibility. The responsibility of people getting the message to be to to come up to your level of explana- yes. explanation. Yes. Okay. When I say that I accept responsibility for my mode of explanation, clearly I have a inborn bias regarding how I explain myself and how I choose to, and clearly I subjectively think that my mode of explanation is a good one. Mm. Clearly, however, there are arguments against that, not the least of which is Jamie's, in which he criticizes my mode of explanation as not being clear. So, so what then has to be brought to bear is a method of object, objective criticism as to determine the, the truth of this or not. So the, clearly I'm subjective with respect to the fact that I'm choosing a mode of explanation and my choice is based upon my thinking of how to use words and form sentences that, that in my mind are absolutely the most clear and articulate. Cle- clearly, however, this is not the case amongst certain of my critics who argue something other than that. So uh, it is true, as you indicated, that I criticize the notion of simplifying any content beyond the level at which I deem it to be necessary to understand. Because the, the, the more we reduce something down, 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 it begins to lose the, lose the characteristics that it started with. So, for example, the greater the emergence or the complexity of a concept, the more nuanced it is and the more cognitive energy goes into understanding it at a, from a first principles perspective. And if we, for the sake of appealing to a broader audience who does not have the knowledge or the intellectual hardware, if we reduce down, down, down something complex to a level, to, to the level at which it is ultimately understood by someone, we, we, what we then have to question is, well, what is the content that they actually have understood at this point, and to what degree does it resemble what we started with? And so, as you, as you know from my book, It is critical in my argument that these governing dynamics of coaching be understood at the requisite level. And it, it should be pointed out that this is what this brings to mind part of a conversation that I had with physicist David Deutsch, in which case I had asked David his thoughts on mathematics, you know, being a very large field of all the different subtypes and to what extent, particularly in his work, the the knowledge of mathematics and different fields of mathematics was the most relevant and what he utilized to effectively hone down on this broad field 
in terms of what types of mathematics are the most relevant? Must you have a comparable and deep understanding of all of them? And and I thought it, his response is what came to mind here with with this topic that we're discussing. What, what he said was, you simply have to be able to solve the problem at the level at which it exists. That's what you have to understand. And so the, critis, the critics of mine that have criticized me for having a reductionist perspective, it, that's an inaccurate criticism because I actually criticize reductionism on its own in the book, which you'll see. Part of the problem-solving process does involve reductionism, but this is not the end because that has its inbuilt limitations. When we when we analyze something from a first principles perspective, this is a mechanistic understanding. How does it work? What are the component parts? And so anyone who has the governing dynamics of coaching understands that this is the way that I explain what these governing dynamics are from a mechanistic reference frame. So solving the problem at the level in which it exists demands an objective understanding of the subject matter. And so for me, it's very clear and I think it should be for others. Clearly it's not, you know, as to why the reason it is not, this is part of what we're discussing. The objectivity as it regards coaching and sport stems from solving these problems at the level at which they exist. So when we understand facets of sociology and evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology, and then we utilize this objective knowledge to discuss culture and its establishment, and then we move to neuropsychology and neuropsychiatric research and neuroscientific research and so on, we then arrive at objective scientific findings to discuss psychological preparation, and then we move to cognitive science and epistemology and others in order to describe the significance of analysis and intellectual preparation. And as I go through the rest of the governing dynamics, what I'm referencing from it is the, the sources from which anyone may derive objective knowledge as it regards what I've termed these governing dynamics. So in my judgment, it's, it, it could not be more simple to understand this is how objectivity works in coaching. And perhaps there has been an error in signal with me explaining that. Otherwise, I'm not sure where the confusion arises because it, it could not be much more obvious as far as I'm concerned. So uh, another big criticism that, that seems to come from um, a lot of people could be, be the mainly suppose it's from people who are in the, the coaching profession. Um, Cause I'm just, I'm just thinking as I was about to ask this question, like, I don't know of anyone who's just an academia that, that criticizes James and students, just people coaching, but the biggest criticism that seems to come across is that you 
come up with a lot of theories and a lot of suggestions, but offer very little in way of practical um, application. So that's fair enough in that, you know, I am a consultant and there's limits to my pro bono work. And so perhaps that's because I, I choose not to spell out the actual methods that's, that's limited to the, you know, my paying clients. And so that, that, that's fair enough. If, if, pe if people are unhappy about the fact that I'm not handing out, uh, you know, the information of how to actually put the governing dynamics to, to work, that that's because I'm a consultant and I get paid to do that. And so if, 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 if that's sort of the line of demarcation, then, you know, fair enough. There's only, there's only so much, if, if we, if we were to look, uh, you know, I would point towards other individuals and, and other businesses, you know, how, you know, Tim Cook or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, the, you know, the, these individuals get all sorts of media coverage. How much are they actually giving away? And clearly what they're not giving away of anything that is proprietary. And so, I'm, as you know, you know, we do these once a month and I'm on many other podcasts and I have my own site with my lectures and all the rest. The, the, the line, I, I'm, I'm certainly cautious not to cross the line into what I consider to be proprietary because why would anyone buy the book and enlist my services if I was giving everything away for free? So maybe, maybe that's where that comes in, comes in. For example, the sport preparatory engineering, which a conversation you enjoyed a few podcasts ago. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, I explained it in the book. I've talked about it a great deal. However, no one's really seen, okay, what does it actually look like when this happens? And the, if you were to speak to the NFL team that I'm on retainer with, you know, they've actually seen what it looks like. And I'm, I'm, I'm confident that if, coaches from that team were to provide some insights to the, to the public domain, they, they would even indicate that what they're actually working off of versus even what I write in the book or what I've explained, there's quite a differential in terms of what this actually looks like when it's done. And, you know, that's proprietary. So I'm, I'm not going to explain that apart from anyone who's a paying client. So if, if that's where the, the line gets drawn, then fair enough. Just one sort of, and this is even a question for myself. So, we, we, you know, the government dynamics, uh, uh, you know, obviously spoken about at length, and the sort of, you know, in the last episode we spoke about this desegregation between all of the silos within sports preparation. So between, uh, you know, the... And I'm using quotations here just to make you feel better. The strength and conditioning staff, the sports medicine staff, the sports science staff, the sports coaching staff, and maybe there's someone in there with skill acquisition as well. And this sort of desegregation between all those uh, areas. Like, could, uh, this is actually, and again, this question for me, and I also want to have this question. You, so you, you speak about that, that all these, are you saying that all these areas will be gone and that one person will oversee all that as one person? Or... Is it that one person oversees all of those departments? So basically, it's a generalist with specialists underneath them. Because my, because to me that already exists. 
in some organizations? No, the, the, the problem is that if I, you know, you know, if we're doing one of these hypotheticals that, you know, James is in charge of global sport for a day, what, rather, it'd be more than a day, what, what has to happen is that everything is burned down and rebuilt from the ground up so that n no one in the building, all, all those specialty fields that, that you mentioned, no one in the building is there unless they have gone through a common educational system based on the governing dynamics. So, so we, I, everyone has to appreciate the, what does this thing look like that is approximate to medical school, but for sport. Yeah. So let's just call it sport school in which all the curriculum is based upon the governing dynamics of coaching. So everyone goes through sports school and only after sports school then leans towards a residency in biomechanics okay, yeah. or psychology or nutrition or physiotherapy or skill acquisition or technical programming, tactical engineering. Now what you have, similar to any medical staff or any law staff, of which everyone has either been a product of medical school or law school, no matter the divergence in their specialty craft, they're unified via this common element. And then, yeah. and then beyond that, this, the global load manager, as I argue in my book, this is now the qualification for head coach. Yeah, that, that, clears, that clears it up perfectly. Yeah. No, so because there is organ so in my mind, like I was like organizations like that, but now I, I understand where it comes from in that the organizations out there currently don't have this unified education where they all they all went to college where they did their general sort of degree, so like medicine, and then after that they all go off in their own special residencies, but they all have this common unified language and education that they went through for the first four or five years of education. And and then beyond that we have the criticize the criticisms that I explain in the book of the actual specialty fields that currently exist. So I, I have loads of criticisms against how physiotherapists are educated. Educated. I have loads of criticism against how sport coaches are educated. Loads of criticisms of how such and such specialists are educated. So it's it's not enough to even pot as you indicated it already exists where you can have accomplished people in each domain working together and supervised by you know these high performance managers and these performance directors but this has failed from the beginning according to my argument because of the ill-conceived modes of how these specialists are educated and simply by combining them and asking them to speak together speak to each other and communicate solves very little and problematically perhaps at the top of the list is the fact that we still have these individual compositional efforts that are acting independent of one another's void of a common blueprint and so there's there's quite a few very easy targets for me to criticize that I label under the dysfunction and 
according to this reference frame, I have yet to be aware of or bear witness to even an intelligent counter argument. I have yet. So I defy any listener to present one. So just uh, another thing that comes from Jamie's article, um, and this came from your podcast with Dan, and it came from your, your Real Madrid example, you know, that basically anyone could manage them and they'd still be successful. Oh, yes. So I'm just going to read here again. Um, There's a little bit here, but I'll read it, and again, you can, uh, you can give your rebuttal to it. So the suggestion that anyone could manage Real Madrid because the players are so good is uh, palpably absurd. This is not a computer simulation. In reality, you would first actually have to convince the squad of global footballing glitterata that you are worthy of your position. Um, and then he goes on further here to say, I'm just going to, uh, well, he has a quote here actually that I'll read first. So the quote says, if you have limited tactical knowledge, you can still be a successful coach. On the other hand, if you have great tactical qualities, but you are not good with man management, you will never be successful. I place great emphasis in giving my players a clear tactical plan to give them help and support in match situations, but the relationship I have with them is very, very important. Now, that's not Jamie. He's quoting uh, an individual called Julian Nagelsmann. Mm. Um, and there's a last little bit here, and, and then I'll, I'll tell you when I'm done. So this is Jamie again now. He continues, The conflation of mechanical parts with human beings is no isolated incident. Probably this, this is him talking about you. The idea that humans are mechanical machines whose brains exert computational power is one that seems characteristic of Smith's fundamental view of the world. Smith speaks of the need for coaches to self-regulate their emotions to the point where it would seem to seem no traces of their passions may be found. I'm almost done here. Uh, and is and come to think of it, where this optimal point of emotional sorry, where is this optimal point of emotional self-regulation? How has it been derived? Based on what metrics? Using which methodology? Who has decided where it lies? I'll give you one guess. And then finally says here, does Smith honestly believe that an outpouring of emotion from coach from the coach must always be detrimental? and cannot possibly have a positive influence on the performance of the team. Uh, if this is the case, why not employ a coach at all? If all decisions are to be made on the basis of objective deduction and computation, then what role is left for the coach to play? And this is the final part, James, I promise. I thought you just bit was a bit long. Uh, why not simply employ a team of analysts to instruct the players? A group of pale-faced technocrats, stochastically, I'm saying that word wrong, Stoichally is it S T O I C A L L Y? What's that, James? S T O I S T. He he's referring to stoicism. Yeah, uh, dictating dictating behind the screens of their devices. I know what the word is. I just can't pronounce it. Uh, hell, why not dress them in bio? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's kind of funny. I said that. Why not dress them in biohazard suits so that their expressions were obscured from the potential of misinterpretation and their bodies be protected from exposure to the frothing animalism of their ghastly players. Yes. That was actually kind of funny now, Fairness. Yeah, it's very well written. And, and actually, <clears throat> you know, truth in jest, I would argue that what, what he concluded with there would actually be an improvement upon global coaching. I, I, I would argue that there is 
there is sound logic behind how simply these antel- these analysts who expressions are concealed by biohazard suits, I would argue that that would be more effective globally. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, now, certainly that's not my solution, but if it's A or B, the existing way that coaching works versus this well-written sarcasm that Jamie listed, I'd actually opt for the sarcasm and that would be that would be an improvement, but there, there, there is, there's quite a thing, few things that you said that re- regarding my example of how anybody could coach Real Madrid or the pro teams, the reason why this is, you know, to my knowledge, this has not been done, so I cannot point to an example, but the logic of my argument stems from the inherent ability that any group of professional athletes has to have to be competitive at the professional level. So what this means is, and uh, I'm not sure, again, I, I think you can almost hear the emotion in, in the writing. You know, when, when, when Jamie writes palpably absurd, because I, I think it's pretty intuitive for everyone to understand. If I take a group of whether it's professional La Liga or Bundesliga or Premiership, if I take a group of professional football players and we deconstruct what is it about these individuals that renders them the ability to compete at this professional level as opposed to a group of, let's say, 10-year-old youth football players. If I take the same person off the street, the milkman, the mailman, what have you, and I put them into each position. You can either coach or manage these professional players or these 10-year-old players. The reason why this person off the street who, on the basis of my argument, doesn't know anything about football, the reason why they'll they'll be exposed almost immediately with the 10-year-olds is because the 10-year-olds do not yet have the playing ability. Whereas at the professional level, we've got professional level playing ability. So even if the team, for whatever reason, because let's say this milkman or this mailman is a great just human being, they're morally and ethically sound and they love watching football, but they don't really know anything about it. So they walk in here. At the very least, the team can say, "Okay, coach, we know you don't really know what you're doing, so we'll just we'll just do it. We'll coach ourselves." And because they're professional, they're going to go out and they're going to win games, particularly in a sport like football, where there's very little coach intervention during the actual game. If you look at football versus American football, for example. There's, there's a great deal more implications of intra-game coaching coming from the coach in American football because every single time the whistle blows, there's a new offensive or defensive play being called, which is an intervention by actually many coaches in terms of how they interact with their positional players. Whereas in association football, you... You effectively have someone, you know, not, it's not dissimilar from basketball and many of these other sports, rugby, where, where the amount and influence of coaching during the game is far less consequential 
than by comparison American football where you know every single play is a result of a coaching intervention. So it's even a bigger reason why we could take someone off the street to coach any professional level association football team because the, the coach can simply be excluded from the whole operation and you can still have a high level competition. This cannot happen at the youth level because at the youth level, according to my argument, there is not yet the knowledge of how to even play the game. So very quickly, this person who has no idea how to coach is exposed because these players are learning every day, every week. The reason why incompetence can exist at the highest levels is because the compensating mechanism of all athletes operating at the highest level is tremendous due to their ability and their outputs and technical skills, et cetera, that have been built up by the time that they're operating at the highest level. So this should be very easy for everyone to understand. And if it's not, perhaps it's because they haven't thought about it the way that I just explained it. But the, the fact remains is whether you're coaching youth athletes or whether you're teaching primary school people, you will be exposed that much faster by not knowing what you're talking about because the people that you are teaching and coaching do not yet know what to do. Yeah, I, I understand the point you're trying to make, but I, I think when you say like the milkman could manage Real Madrid is a little bit severe in that like if a milkman did take over, it's because the team would be mutiny, there'd be uproar over, like it would be this you know, it'd be an absolute disgrace. Whereas I understand what you're saying. You're saying that you could have a manager who really is not great. He's not good at all. But he's won a lot. But he's still not actually great from a company standpoint. But like he still has experience in soccer and football and is well respected by peers. But that still doesn't mean that he is, if you want to say, world class, which is a completely subjective thing to all to say. I heard you say that to Dan. That was one thing in the podcast. I, I, when Dan actually said, I've worked with world-class coaches, like, oh, wrong person to say that. To. He's going to pull him up over that. And then I was like, yep, he did. Too liberal with that term. That's um, right. But, like, I, I understand where you're coming from, but it is a bit severe, the example you're giving. And I think that's why people backlash against that. Like, you can't say the milkman can, can manage Real Madrid because in their head they're actually thinking about a guy who actually drives a milkman is going to show up and, yeah. like, they're just going to win. But I, I understand the point you're, you're trying to get across. And I understand the point you're saying that if you took this manager down to a junior level where – it, there is a lot more uh, clarity in seeing how confident he is because these players can't cover up for his lack of incompetence because they're obviously not at an elite level yet. I, I get that. But I just think that the backlash is maybe that the example is a bit severe. And I know as well you said this, and you actually said this on the interview with Dan. I know another sort of issue, and this is purely an emotional one because I've heard people say this. They say that they don't like when you call their profession incompetence. So it makes, mm. you, it makes you feel like you're calling people like they're living in a stone age. And they're like, he, he just, he, he, basically the feeling that people get is you're, caught, you're, you're, you're sitting on the sideline, you're not in the ring. It's like that Teddy Roosevelt saying, you know, you're, you're the person out in the crowd pointing the finger, but you don't want to step in the ring, you're not in the trenches. And you're calling everyone else a monkey and just criticizing, but you don't give us solutions. That's the sort of sense that a lot of people get to. Even though on that podcast with Dan, you did say, listen, when I use the words incompetent, confident, I'm not attacking anyone individual. They're just the words I choose to use. Well, uh, uh, again, regarding the, you know, I, uh, a criticism, if I'm not telling anyone what to do, what am I doing on the sidelines? 
This is only true regarding the people who have not enlisted me as a consultant because the, the, the coaches and the athletes and the teams and the military special operators with whom I work, they are recipients of the applied knowledge. The, the word incompetence is to be, as you indicated, there's an emotional reaction to this. It needs to be according to the way it works in the way that I use the word is just simply according to the definition. Yeah. So I'll, I'll read it. You know, the, the first entry in Oxford dictionary is not having or showing the necessary skills to do something successfully. I have created a large book of explanations regarding what it means to be competent according to my argument. So anyone that does not fit that criteria is therefore incompetent. Now, I've already explained ad nauseum all the different modes, one of which is what we just described. And, and I'll, for the sake of discussion, Robbie, I'll, I, I know that you have you indicated it's extreme. I'll stick with the milkman. Uh, and I'll, I can explain why the milkman can win in Munich or with Real Madrid or Manchester. The, the reason the milkman can win is because there is such a large dysfunction in the education of coaches. And actually, world football is the easiest one to criticize because of every single sport in the world, every single sport in the world, <clears throat> managers, particularly in the Premier League, have the shortest mean duration of tenure. In every sport in the world. Yeah, I know that. So I don't know what clearer indication there is of the, the lack of sufficient education where of all the sports in the world, you have these individuals losing their jobs faster than anyone else. So the, the reason why the milkman has a, an even better shot to be successful is because we're going to build into this milkman a degree of humility. So this, this milkman is going to arrive to one of these pro teams and say, you know, listen, gents, I recognize sort of the absurd nature of all this, but it, it is what it is. I, I've been put in charge here, and I just want to let you know that I want to do the, the best I possibly can for you. So, so let's try to f figure this out together. And I, and I come to you admitting my, my lack of understanding. Now, the way that this works, Robbie, is, and I've had these conversations with people outside of sport many times, because there is so much dogma and myopic thinking in sport, you will actually get more holistic and intelligent answers from people who have little to no knowledge of sport. I'm going to give you one. It's the first example that comes to mind. Years ago, I was speaking to a computer software technician from Google. This was a, a German national, someone from Germany who had, who had married someone from the, the U.S., 
and we were having a dinner and this this tech from Google was asking me you know what I did for a living and I was explaining all the rest and he was he thought it was interesting because he was just sort of a casual association football fan and so he heard my my criticisms and we we spoke for I don't know maybe it was 10 or 20 minutes and then I I, I <clears throat> excuse me I asked him I said I'm curious based upon what I've told you if you were put in charge of a team what would you do and the answer that he gave is is what I am approximating the same one that the milkman would give. And what the answer that he gave was, well, I'd have I'd have to start by taking a look at what does this sport consist of? What what do these athletes do? And then we would work from there in formulating how to prepare them for that sport. And I told him, I said, you single-handedly just, just, just described, granted, it, it's, a, it's an ambiguous sort of, it's a general answer, but you've single-handedly described what most coaches are not doing. Because if there was a first principles understanding of the sport in question and all of its derivatives, such as what I explained in the governing dynamics of coaching, I wouldn't be having much to criticize. So this is the reason why I would grant most milkmen just as high, if not a higher probability of winning because their inter <clears throat> what we, what we're doing is we're essentially eliminating the possibility of an intervention being a problematic or a dysfunctional or an, an inhibitory one. Because the, the collective mindset that I'm granting would simply be rooted in, okay, let, let's take a look at the sport. Let me take your input as players and, and what do you feel and think is the most effective approach to this. And, and I would argue that a more athlete-centric mode of competition preparation would be an improvement upon what most co coaches are currently doing. Great stuff. Okay, so... <clears throat> I, I forgot what else was in there in terms of the... No, we, the, the, well, that, went, the, that just went off our question about uh, Real Madrid and the Milkman. That's what we're going Plus, you know, the Milkman can get them all the way protein that they need, so there's a bit of a bonus there. <laughs> uh, but listen, like if to, a, a lot of this is coming down to people's frame of references and all their right. all their environmental exposures and experiences up until this current point in their life. So, if they don't have a frame of reference for a piece of information that they are trying to understand, I'd rather say trying than say understand, then like they're obviously going to come to a misinterpretation of this information, and then that's where these false assumptions well, come from. Therein lies the rub, Robbie. I mean, therein lies the rub. Yeah, so, I mean, these conversations are just fucking waste of time, then. <laughs> that's, that, that's certainly one way to look at it. it. It's What we have is we have a global pandemic in that sports fans, media, coaches... Specialists, executives, 
owners, management, stakeholders, legislator, absolutely everyone is operating in the dark, in the dark. Now, this only becomes clear once the knowledge is shared with those who lower their emotional defenses in favor of objective criticism and then realize the unarguable nature of this truth. And again, I, you know, I wrote a book to explain all of this. The, the reason why it should be clearly understood is because the magnitude of knowledge that exists outside of the myopic narrow lanes of sport that are directly implicated in sport. Because yeah. sport is simply, you know, an, another one of these emergent hierarchical processes that deals with an infrastructure and executors of instruction and all the rest. There's nothing particularly unique about it from a, a general principle standpoint or the, the logic of how it works. We can, we can create all sorts of analogies for things that are approximate to it, the way that military units operate, the way that corporate departments operate. You've got individuals that execute, you've got individuals that supervise, you have individuals who support and instruct. It's all the same thing in principle. And then we have the subtleties of the dynamics that distinguish each one from the next. And this absence, you know, and, I, and every conversation that I have with a client, as I mentioned earlier, it should be easy enough for everyone to understand how smoothly this information is assimilated because there's some component of my argument that resonates with this individual to begin with, which is why they enlist my services. So it's, you know, I, I, I've had these conversations with owners of NBA and NFL team, actual team owners. I've had these conversations with executives obviously with coaches, with players, and the smoothness at which the information is, is assimilated is, is predicated upon the intellectual aptitude to understand it well enough and the absence enough of emotions implicating a biased perspective. Yeah, so, well, I mean, but, like, that's... that's, that's <laughs> Come back to whatever up there. So saying phrase breakfast is another way of saying that's people's biases. I mean, like no baby is born into the world knowing love or hate or any sort of bias. It's all learned through environments and experiences. So what's happening is again is that again, depending on where people are in terms of their biases and their frames of references, this is just leading us in the in the fucking circles in that like you know, people come with these criticisms. Again, I go back to saying nearly and again, I have to say this is this is opinion. This is subjective. I don't have any statistical data to back this up, so it's not objective. But just from what I've observed, and again, as well as that is subjective because everyone's perception of reality is subjective. But nearly every single criticism that I come across is always nearly. I won't say always. Nearly every criticism that I come across is based on false assumptions. And one of my favorite books is The Four Agreements, and in that he says, "Don't make assumptions because you just never know what's going on with someone or something." And again, like everyone and everything is the way they are for a reason. Like one of the, my fundamental tenets of trying to understand reality 
in, in one of the ways I try to currently, I want to be careful with my words, currently understand reality based on what I currently know, because again, there's so much knowledge out there, and obviously I don't know all the knowledge that's already out there, and then we have to talk about new knowledge which we've all talked about. But the way I, the way I currently perceive and try to understand reality is through epigenetics, have an appreciation of the environment usually shapes the organism. Now I know human species, what separates us from other organisms is that we we can choose to respond rather than react to our environment. We have we can actually perceive our environment. So that's what separates us from other organisms and animals and kind of put us at the top of the, the animal kingdom if you like. But just even being aware of that appreciation, it just kind of relieved me of all this what I think is just fruitless conversations. Like it's just like like we're just gonna go around in circles here if if we don't have an appreciation for these uh like for these fundamental sort of tenets, again, like that epigenetics and environment, and that everyone's frame of reference is going to be different. Therefore, if your frame of reference is going to be different, your ability to extract a full understanding from someone else's conjectures or opinions is always going to be slightly fought by your perceptions of reality. Okay, can I just ask one thing? I want to ask one thing. Just to summarize sort of your... Now, while I have the Govan Dynamics, I'm, I'm still in college, <laughs> okay? I'm not finished till the end of June this year, and I still have college work to do, so I've only dipped into your book. Your book's a monster, so I haven't read the whole thing yet, cover to cover. Don't worry, I will, and I'll shred the pieces and criticize the bollocks area, just to let you know. Uh, but just in summary, is this fair enough to say, okay? So, because th these are some of the criticisms I hear, and I want to make it very clear, while we're friends, and obviously when people are friends, it's always going to be hard not to have some subjective feelings of, you know, towards you, the person in that, it may be some, I, mean, I try not to just country, but some country that maybe comes across that I start defending them, but all I ever want to do is to make sure that people are clear in their understanding of what the individual is trying to say, like, that was the thing with the FMS with me years ago, this, this is actually the longest I've ever spoke on one of our shows, I will be done, give me, give me, just give me two minutes here, like, this is one of the things with the FMS years ago, people thought, like, I was this FMS fucking zealot, that, like, I just love the FMS, it wasn't that, it was that the criticisms were based on false assumptions, does it have flaws, yes, it does, of course it does, no system is flawless, but it's it's also similar to, to what I see in, in other areas of arguments, but just to summarise your messages here, because this is, this is criticisms I get, James doesn't offer solutions, he just, he just, he just, uh, basically complains and gives out, and, and, points out flaws, but he doesn't give solutions. What I've answered that is because James's solution of government dynamics cannot fit within the current structure of sports preparation because it doesn't exist. So would that be correct? Because you said we'd have to burn everything down and restart. So that, that's the point I make to people is that it's not within your frame of reference. It's like people turn around to Einstein and say, show me proof of relativity like I can't because there's nothing to compare it against. It's never, nothing's come before to have a frame of reference. So that, that, it, that's similar to the government dynamics. So there's no frame of reference so people can't conceptualize it, so then they criticize it. That's one way to look at it. It's not as if when I state that I'd burn everything down and we'd start over and have this approximation of medical school, that's the ideal scenario. Clearly, that's not going to happen anytime soon. So now, 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 this is where the people will ask, well, then what's your solution? This is what, this is what they're going to come back with. And that's when I say contact me for consulting because I'm not giving it away for free. <laughs> okay. The The... The the solution is is based upon how to reorganize how these dysfunctional cells operate to educate each individual cell to integrate the engineering etc. That that's how you make the best of these worst case scenarios apart from starting all over from scratch. But I'll 
I want to bring up one more thing that you reminded me of when you mentioned perception in one of the criticisms that Jamie wrote in the article that you that, that you stated when you just read it was the you know the notion of the the emotional outpouring of coaches and should they be concealed by the biohazard suits and what is this optimal level of self-regulation so this is where I and again I have to point towards the book I I answer this question in the book and yeah, we 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 spoken about this this goes back to the baby getting smashed by the car <laughs> well it, it, yes it well it goes to that in addition it goes to these other professions yeah in which this inborn level of self-regulated focus and control is intrinsic to the profession itself. Most recently, I posted the audio from a Southwest Airlines flight. Yeah, See, I've I, already, I've I already I forgotten the I name. I don't know. Yeah, that's the one dog post. Yeah, we spoke about this in the last podcast. Now, again, this is this is what most people are going to take away from this already. They're going to take away again that. You think everyone should be a machine because people associate military and like you know those top fucking like. So here's let me let me yeah. let me let me interrupt you there. The, every everyone would have to rethink the mechanistic criticism when I unravel the amount of professions in which this is true. So we go from the airline pilot to the air traffic controller to the trauma room surgeon to the law enforcement emergency operator to the firefighter to the police person. Formula one drivers? You know, it's just we go on and on. It's ironically or coincidentally rather – I was just having this conversation last week. I told you how I was visiting friends from special operations. So in one particular conversation, I was speaking to a tier one special operations squadron commander and a plastic surgeon. And I was giving this explanation. And it just so happened to be that these are two individuals that I actually include in my book, surgeons and special operators. And in in speaking to the surgeon and the special operator, you can appreciate how obvious the truth of my objective claim here is the reason why, and I mean, I'm pointing to them as I'm speaking to them, the reason why you as the assaulter and you as the surgeon benefit from clear, calm, self-regulated, focused thinking is because of all the explanation that I give in the book. And the reason why emotional volatility and passion, which by definition is barely controllable emotion, is the absolute last things that need to be on the forefront of behavior or consciousness due to how they disrupt the nuanced and subtle elements of the details and the implications of things going wrong in what you do and and the reason why again Robbie what we go back to in sport is just the volume of compensating mechanisms that exist so it's too easy for the apologists to say well James of course the special operator and the surgeon and the air traffic controller and the pilot 
in the 911 operator or the 99, you know, whatever part of the world you're from, you, you know, we go down through all these lists of these individuals who demonstrate calm, cool, collected, focused decision making. It's too easy for the apologists to say, well, of course they need to be this way because if they get something wrong, someone dies, someone bleeds out on the operating table, someone does not get emergency services to them fast enough on the phone, someone crashes the airplane, and, and, and they go through all these lists of obvious, more severe consequences, and then they come back to sport and they say, you know, but in sport, no one's dying, no one's crashing, no one's bleeding to death, no one's dodging bullets. And so there's this, as you mentioned, false assumption, there's these confirmation bias that gets rewarded because you see a coach yelling and screaming, appeasing to an emotional level and, and some player athletes who then respond to this, let's say, for example, with some increased vigor. And so a confirmation bias arises as to why this is beneficial in this environment, even though the last thing anybody wants from their airline pilot or the police operator or their the assaulter here or the firefighter there or whoever, the last thing they want is a similar emotional reaction or delivery for obvious reasons. And so the the argument, aside from those which I mentioned, the potential damaging effects psychologically due to the lack of mature formation of the prefrontal cortex in anyone who's essentially younger than 25 years of age, aside from actually having these distinct behavioral influences due to the lack of complete you know, psycho, psycho-behavioral crystallization of this cortical region of the brain that's principally responsible for higher executive function. Aside from that, we have the implications that are overblown because the greater the emotional arousal, the lack of motor acuity, the lack of subtle, nuanced thinking, detail-focused, oriented. And so there's just so many ways to criticize. It's just the fact that it's so ordinary in sport, Robbie, that it's difficult, particularly those who are more either parochially minded or influenced by conventional wisdom, it's too easy to have a emotional reaction because so much of what I'm criticizing is the way that it's done everywhere. And it just so happens to be that this, this minority position that I have is, is easily attacked because it's, it's too convenient for someone to say, well, James, if what you say is true, show me somebody who's doing what you're espousing. And this is, this is too convenient of a defense at the moment in time, any time throughout recorded history, where you have convention and conventional wisdom being challenged. It's, it's happened throughout recorded history. It's a, it tends to be approximate to the point in time in which paradigm shifts occur 
but it's happened throughout history. So there's nothing different there. But I, I wanted to point that out regarding the emotional regulation that one must look to all these other professions, in which case this is demonstrated, and then ask the question, if this was more ubiquitous in sport, what would the benefits be? And the intricacies of those benefits are explained in my book. Yeah, I, like, I, okay, I've, I've no uh, issue understanding your point there, but I, I know that what people are going to take or what, well, actually, I take that back. I, I can't, I cannot say I know, I can't say that to Finley. But I think what a lot of people are going to take away from uh, conjectures like that that you bring up, they, they're still going to come away with James thinks emotions bad, that everything is mechanistic. Like, that's what people are going to take away from this. And then the other thing is that I think another issue people bring up is that the, the conference in which you portray, 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 word, portray your, your point of view is probably what sort of gets under people's skin and that, like, you nearly say it as if this is an actual fact that, like, if, if people could regulate their emotions and people could be more, in their head, more machine-like, that it would it would be better for sports preparation or that if the milkman did take over Real Madrid, this would absolutely happen. Whereas, like, there's, like, again, as you said, there is no... Like, there, there is no evidence to show this yet, but yet people think, well, then he's putting it across with such confidence that this is actual fact yet, where really it's only just a conjecture in his book. And he, mm -hmm. and, and then and that you use examples from other domains to back up your your arguments, essentially. That's what I'm just yeah, saying. So I'm just putting it across. Sure, and so th this is why everyone would benefit from having greater knowledge of, of for example, while, while my argument is not rooted only in scientific discovery, because again, remember, I'm educated as a musician and I, I reference the work of the esteemed conductor Simon Rattle and all these components of music as they regard the engineering, all, all the rest of that. The more knowledge that anyone has of the scientific method, you understand how many of our most profound theories are still not based upon observation. Our whole mode of having this discussion right now cannot happen without quantum mechanics. There is no internet. There is no lasers. There's no computers. There's no cell phone technology. There's none of this without quantum mechanics. Yet quantum mechanics on its own is still very mysterious within the physics community of many different... Inter you have the more parochial Copenhagen interpretation, you've got the many worlds interpretation, you've got string theory, you've got a lack of consensus agreement on the basis of the specifics, yet it works. And the reason why it works profoundly well, it's the most deepest and intricate and effective theory so far in physics, even though so much of it is very difficult to understand and conceptualize and there has yet to be consensus agreement on the extent of it the reason why it's so effective is due to the mathematical equations that lie at its bedrock and how those are experiment they they are confirmed and met and agreed upon in experiment so 
Similarly here, we have to look at, well, what's the equivalent of the mathematics of, of my argument? And it's the basis of the logic of the argument that is what must be met with attempts to criticize as opposed to the emotional way in which you and others, as, as we know, most of it occurs. So logic must be, it's the logic of it that must be criticized if an effective substantive criticism is to be generated. And it is here where, where I localize my response to such criticisms that I have yet to be aware of an intelligent substantive criticism of the argument and and ultimately somebody has to read the book in order to form a a robust enough substantive criticism again it's going back to frame of reference i mean you know when you use the example in the last podcast of you know the girl if she got interviewed after everyone got killed in her school saying that you know if she had the knowledge to be able to regulate her emotions uh, she should be able to do that but like just most people would not be able to conceptualize that based off their current frames of references or their experiences or their sort of uh, what they their, their perceptions of what a mass mass massacre like that would would evoke in most individuals in terms of emotions because they wouldn't have any experience with like people in the army or first responders or unless they're either in that profession or live with those people or know those people firsthand so again it just goes back again to People's, people's frame of references and knowledge. That, that's precisely it. I mean, and, and specifically to that point, it's it's convenient you brought it up. Just within this past week, I was having a conversation with a close friend of mine who's in special operations, whose wife is an FBI special agent. Mm. So you've got a special operator husband and an FBI agent wife, and they have a young child. And I gave that exact example using the school shooting and how through psychological preparation, their child could be the objective one reporting on it objectively. And both of them coming from that frame of reference simply looked at me and nodded and they say, yeah, that that makes perfect sense. So we come back to this frame of reference, which you have rightly brought up again and again. And what this points towards is the utility in people working towards developing an objective one first and foremost, which is to say developing the psychological skill to mitigate, if not a remove emotion from the interpretation of such information like this, in addition to build upon it with knowledge. James, I don't know if we have much more to cover. It is up to yourself. So basically, again, to summarize, the governed dynamics could not fit in the current sporting model. Uh, well, that that's not ex- it in the fullest extent. Sense, yeah, yeah. I know. In the fullest extent, we would reorganize it to to in in order to improve upon the way things currently work. Certainly, the governing dynamics will influence. It's just that in order for it to do its job to the fullest extent, we would have a drastically reformatted mm. environment. Okay. Actually, I have two, I have two more questions for you. Um, so we're, we've another five hours to go. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, yeah, we already jumped. But I, no, I, I do have two more questions. We only jump into five hours. 
Um, again, yeah, so anyway, government dynamics. I, I like the example of the medical model and the law model, particularly the medical one. That makes sense in, in my head. Uh, again, the, the there's just huge misinterpretations when you you know when people take away your message on emotions and uh, being objective and rational and logic and stuff like that, and people think that you just want everyone in the world to be a machine. And as you said, you like you don't deny people have emotions. It's the control of the emotions is is, is the is what we're talking about. Um, the yeah, two more questions. And again, this is not. Like, you know me well. Like, um, do you go? Do you go toilet or something? Do you want to go? I'm good. You're good. I just want. If you need to, I can stop. Um, this again is just a, a, a criticism I hear of other people, and I know you, you won't be able to speak too much about this because of because of uh, contracts, whatever. But a lot of people question the consultant, like how much consultancy you're doing, who's it with, they keep saying that's, that's that's one way he keeps getting out of these things he just goes, oh well my solutions, or again my book, get my book, like, that's what a lot of people are saying too, that you're just saying to people that they'll buy your book or that they've got consultancy with you or they're wondering like, you know, how much consultancy has he done mm. Right, so I'm, I'm committed to not falling into the trap of empiricism Yeah because again, this, I, this, I, this is me. I'm just letting you answer. Yeah, yeah. Of course, I understand, and it's I understand the basis on the which such questions arise, but they are arising from the wrong place. For example, I was recently consulting psycho, psychological consulting with a a high school athlete in in the U.S bestowing upon this athlete that this information it's conventional wisdom it's the way that empiricism is implicated still very heavily in society conventional wisdom would suggest that the 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 amount and the notoriety of clients speaks towards the competency or the knowledge of the consultant in this case. This is what conventional wisdom would hold. Most of the world, if they were to hear, does James Smith consult for every team in the Aviva Premiership, for the Springboks, for the All Blacks, for the entire NBA, for the entire NFL, for the entire NHL, for every cricket team in India and the UK, and go on this list, as that list becomes longer and more filled with notoriety, because I'm speaking about you know these highest level teams, these professional teams, etc., most of the world, their eyes become wider and wider and wider as they see such a resume. Mm. What I encourage everyone listening to do is to dismiss any significance that such a list has when the context is knowledge. The, the reason why I do not list, apart from on my actual CV, all of the, the programs and people that I consult with is because I do not want to further contribute 
to this misconception. I want to be only evaluated on the basis of my knowledge, which is demonstrated by my mode of explanation. So I'm, I'm willing to accept those criticisms, Rob. Now, you know, because we speak offline, I mentioned you, yeah, you have some yeah. idea. Yeah. And it, it, the reason why I, uh, I do not mention this publicly is because it would be too easy for me to rely upon what all these individuals who I, I criticize in the objective sense for being incompetent, it would be too easy for me to rely upon the same mode as everyone else does to profess my competency, which would be to say, well, the reason why everybody should take me seriously, Robbie, is because I consult for A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J. I'm not going to do that, even though I could, because I want to be judged only on the basis of my explanation and what that requires in order for the highest form of criticism to be applied is an objective reference frame from the individual doing the criticism, criticizing. Yeah, that's fair enough. I know that, and again, this just comes back to frame of reference, and we've discussed this step, but I know that a lot of people will say, yeah, but are the people you're involved with winning? That's what they're going to come back with. So, you know, what comes to mind, even just regarding the last question in this one, if anyone goes to the front page of my website, I have consulting reviews that are posted by some of, okay. some of the people who I've consulted with. Okay. And much better that you read the review of the client versus hear my explanation of it. Yeah. So that's okay. some of those are posted on my website. Listen, again, I'm just giving you questions that I keep hearing back again and again. So it's, it's not, sure. again, it's, uh, as you alluded to, when you use the words incompetent, you're not attacking any one individual or you're not trying right. to, to um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? You're not trying to belittle, I suppose would be the word, any particular well, and, individual. Well, and, I, and I, I write that in the book, yeah. that there's no, there's no intention to offend anybody. And, and Robbie, it should be understood objectively because I, I could just as easily point out the incompetence in myself if I attempt to do something that I have no ability to do well. But sure another another thing you can say, I say this too, so like even if even if you were saying it to quote unquote offend, people can only let themselves be offended. Like, well that's certainly true. But, you know, that's not what I do because that, I know, that, that's I know. not that's not useful. But yeah, you're correct. That that goes back to the psychological exactly. discussion and that we get to choose how we react to the world. Exactly, because it's in that book The Four Agreements where he actually talks about don't take anything personally. And he actually he's got a great line in it, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, One of the highest forms of selfishness is to be offended because you think everything's about you. So he's just like it's Yeah, not. well said. But anyway, the last thing I want to ask, uh, okay, because because the sense I get off a lot of people is that you just like to give out and complain. So mm. what I would like to finish on is, what is there anything in the sports preparation profession right now that you see any sort of pride in? Like, is there any, 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 like, is there anything about it that you're like, yeah, that, that's good. That, that's a good part of it. I have no issue with that. Is there anything about it? Well... I think it provides a great opportunity for people to make very good livelihoods that reach the professional level. 
what about sports um sports participation as a whole like like do, do like just like kids playing it and stuff like that and Absolutely. The, the, the social dynamic that being part of a, a sport, particularly a team sport, offers is well documented in the literature. Yeah. There's certainly there are positive attributes that I would look in an objective reference range, just, you know, pros cons it's not simply a list of cons it's just that the when it comes to the dynamics of the the the, the coaching and operations and education this is largely filled with criticisms yeah, yeah. no that's it that's all i got today i think uh it'd be great to get jamie on if we could get him on i don't know if you if if, if you guys sure. will will organize something with another podcast but uh that's all i got today i thought that was pretty good um yeah, like if, if people listening like have particular questions that they would like me to ask you, I mean, they can always get in contact with me. So through the through the website or through the podcast or just on Facebook or even email or whatever. So, and um, finally wrapping up, uh, anything else going on with yourself? I know now the the gig in June with Raymond is is official. Uh, you'll be in where is it again? Portugal, or Spain, Spain. In Spain, Valencia. Valencia. Have you been there before? Not to Valencia. This will be the first time to Valencia. Yeah, yeah. Even the name sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Valencia. Yes. Yeah. Sounds so much better than Dublin. Even though, hey, don't get me wrong, I love Dublin. Dublin's great. Uh, just the weather can be a bit nicer sometimes. No, we're getting nice weather lately. James, listen, that, that'll do for today, my man. Uh, as always, global sports concepts. I'll direct people to that. Govern Dynamics. I'll have all, everything linked up in the show notes. Govern, uh, just that, uh, even though the, the, the listeners won't see this, but just to keep you happy, too. <laughs> well done yeah, there it is yeah. you, by the way you could have smiled in that photo for Christ's sake man oh, you sound like my mother <laughs> thanks thanks <laughs> you said I have a feminine voice you didn't say it sounded like your dad there not the mother uh, alright I'll wrap up for today James thanks for me and obviously stay online while I wrap up so for the listeners I hope that was a worthwhile listen as always thought provoking and until next time take care be well and stay strong